Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, hello, and thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And just a couple of things I'd like to ask you to consider. Firstly, my guests share their personal stories, which others may see differently. No one will see a situation the same. It's just human nature. Uh, secondly, my podcasts aren't suitable for children and some adults for that matter. So please consider if it's right for you and contact Lifeline or any other support service if you find yourself affected by my subject matter. Oh, and don't forget, my next show is at the State Library of Victoria on Saturday the 25th of June with undercover cop Keith Banks. I reckon you'll think twice about trusting anybody after listening to Keith. Uh, tickets are through Eventbrite. Thanks. And that's why a lot of disgruntled police, even serving police, one of the common phrases they will use is, well, they don't care about us. They is that faceless entity of the police force. They don't care about us. And, and it really needs to be changed, it really does. Keith Banks is an author of two very successful books, Drugs, Guns and Lies and Gun to the Head, where he talks about his life as an undercover cop and later as a tactical special weapons operator. They're fascinating reads, but both books left me wondering about the price that police pay to catch the bad guys. So why do we do it? What is it that drives us to constantly put ourselves in danger? where we're criticised by the public at times for our lack of action or other times for our overzealous action. But worse, we can be criticised by the very people who employ and train us. Keith Banks joined the Queensland Police Academy as a 16-year-old in 1975, wanting to protect those in abusive households and to fight the drug trade, which he saw as an immense evil. Keith was an innocent, non-drinking, idealistic young recruit. By the age of 22, he'd become an undercover, what we call a UC. But by the time he left undercover two years later, he was a binge drinker who smoked dope with criminals and friends alike. Keith resigned from the police force in 1995, disillusioned, hypersensitive, guilt-ridden, distrusting, sad, angry and racked with PTSD. Keith paid a huge price for trying to protect us and to keep us safe and along the way he lost a couple of very dear colleagues to a darkness that they just couldn't escape from. 
Like so many first responders, Keith never thought of the impact crime would have on his mental health and kept either making excuses or ignoring what was happening inside his head, which presumably had been bubbling away for years. Keith fought much of his psychological demons on his own, with little support and virtually trusting no one with the truth of how he was really feeling. In hindsight, I wonder whether Keith would do it again. Anyway, let's ask him along the way somewhere, but thanks for your time today, Keith. Good morning, and, uh Good morning. <laughs> and uh, before we start, I think we'd better tell the listeners about our show on June the 25th at the State Library, 7pm, tickets through Eventbrite. <laughs> what can the audience expect on that night, Keith? Oh, look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, Narelle. Um, the audience can expect an authentic conversation about undercover work, about deep undercover work. Um, You know, lots of lovely people have seen a lot of movies and television and I guess they have have an image of what it's like to be undercover and how glamorous it is and and the truth is far from that. Um, So they can expect me to to talk about a couple of of operations I've been in, Um, probably from go to woe. Um, One in particular I haven't written about, so for those who've read the book, uh, it will be new. Um, and and really just, you know, an open conversation with you um, about the impact of that sort of life on young people. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it because we've spoken before, obviously, and you said that um, I think a lot of people would be interested in the go from go to woe, like how the job comes in. Uh, who's picked for how a UC is picked and, you know, what you have to do or prepare to be involved in such an operation. Because I've only really ever, in my career, I was only ever part of an operation once where I sought the services, I suppose, of a UC. And that was a one-off, but yours, yours were, like, you were, Another person for years, not just a one once off, were you? Oh, absolutely right. Yeah, I was. In, in fact, four different people. I had four different identities, four different false identities, um, bank accounts and drivers' licenses, and, and in fact, I had a passport in one of them as well. And <gasps> um, yeah, because it was pretty easy to get um, ID in that, or to get passports in those days. You know, that before the whole hundred points of proof thing. Same as opening a bank account, all you needed was a driver's licence and I had four of those that were fake. Um, so, yeah, I mean, living that life, I look back on it now in hindsight and shudder, to be honest, but when you're young, 10 foot tall and bulletproof, you know, and, and you're living that life, it's such a rush. And and I've spoken oh, yeah. about in both of my books how the the rush and the adrenaline, you, you just can't recapture Um and that becomes very addictive. And, and as I'm fond of saying, um, men's brains, according to the medical profession, don't mature until they're 26. I was 22, as were my friends. And, of course, my wife would say that my brain doesn't mature at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I love her. Yeah, yeah. But, but, see, at, at that stage, we were I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere near that. I'll, I'll, I'll stay away from that. I'll, um, I'll let people judge for themselves when they actually buy our tickets and turn up. How's that for a hook? Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you you actually just really didn't like the downtime between jobs unless it had been a horrible job. And, and one I'll talk about on the night really affected me deeply. Um, but 
Others, you know, you'd finish the job, you'd be given another job elsewhere, you know, outside the city or if we'd been in North Queensland back on the Gold Coast or something um, because our identities were disclosed after every operation. And it's really interesting. I'll be careful what I say, but I met a current COVID or young guy who just finished COVID in Brisbane when I was up there doing some research for another book. And, um, and I had some beers with him and it still happens up there. They still get their identities disclosed, not their real identities, but it, it, it is still um, told to the offenders that they've been dealing with an undercover cop, which I just find bizarre. But anyway. Um, do they have to do that? Is that a, a legal requirement? Oh, I think it's more just a procedural and operational one. Um, oh, my God, how dangerous. Yeah, exactly. It was dangerous enough mm. 40, my God, 40 years ago. That's frightening. When I was doing it. Oh, my it, God, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was frightening enough then, uh, but now that it still continues, I, I looked at him and I won't use the language I used, but I said, oh, my goodness gracious, that's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never heard you talk so nicely when you're trying to swear. <laughs> I'm trying to modify my image. Um, but, yeah, it's just astounding. But So back to that, you know, when you're doing it all, it's exciting, it's um, it's different, you know, and and the the thing about undercover work was, and I let's be honest, you know, I'd had, gee, two years in the academy as a, as a cadet. I'd been then in uniform in various areas, and you know the haircut regulations, and I hated hated the haircuts, haircut regulations. Loved wearing the uniform because I thought you needed to look really good in it, so I was always sharp. And um, but. You know, if you didn't have your hat on, you'd be yelled at and screamed at. If you, uh, you know, got out of the car without your tunic buttoned up all the way, you'd be yelled at. Oh, all, yeah. All that sort yep. of stuff. Told when mm. to take your meal break, blah, blah, blah. So undercover living it, carrying a gun all the time, um, you know, living the identity all the time was really appealing because no haircuts, put an earring in, do whatever the hell you – look how – any way you wanted to – you know, dependent on the cover that you had, of course, but but we just we just lived a life that was totally outside the boundaries and the rules in many ways. So that mm. that was pretty addictive in itself. God, yeah, and, and you just said then that you had four different identities, mm. and maybe on the on the night we might go over that a bit because that's so interesting just in itself. Sure. But do you ever find yourself going back to? that identity and thinking, oh, I'm not him anymore? Oh, look, I, I – and again, it's one of the chats I want to have on the night, but I came through pretty much okay. Um, you know, I cha- had a major lifestyle change, but but when I left undercover, I wasn't bad. I took a little time to assimilate back into the real world, but I, but I had friends of mine who were damaged. Oh, God, you know, I had um, Harry who developed a heroin addiction – um, Spider, who developed a major psychological addiction to, to cannabis. Um, Larry, who did it for way too long, and he just could not go back to the real world. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I, I used to talk about, and I think I did mention in my first book somewhere, that my analogy was that we were like scuba divers who came back to the surface too quickly. You come back to the surface too quickly, you develop the bends. And and for a lot of a lot of the boys, and and... And probably me as well. You know, I um, <clears throat> I bought an ounce of heroin one afternoon in a buy bust, and the very next morning, I went to a hairdresser, got my hair cut, put my uniform on, went to work, and sitting in a uniform patrol guard, going, "Wow, 
this is different. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> um, it is just a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and as silly as it sounds, I remember looking at the microphone on the dashboard thinking, now I know I've got to pick it up and use it, but I can't bloody remember what I'm supposed to say. And, um, <laughs> and, and so, so that was a bit different. But, no, I, I, um, I really enjoyed the method acting part of it, Narelle. So, um, you know, as I said, I'm going to talk on the night about something that affected me deeply. But generally I was all right. Um, my mates, not so much. I suppose you'd have to be a very good actor, wouldn't you? Like, have you ever thought, seriously, have you ever thought about being an actor? Like, because you'd obviously be a good one because you can be so many different people. Well, to, yeah, you know what? Yes. Um, so, but I just never followed that up, of course. But but I reckon, you know, it wouldn't, it, it would be, and apologies to any actors listening if they think that I'm telling <laughs> their craft is easy. Because it's not, but you're right, having acted in the real world and, and acted um, in a way that you come up with excuses very quickly, you know, that you've got to think on your feet and you've got to be oh, a character yeah. and you've got to push back oh. and you've got to all manner of things. And um, and funnily enough, a quick side thing, when we in Queensland actually started training our undercovers, there were no training courses when I did it. Um, I was one of the first instructors on what was called the Covert Police Officer CPO course. And uh, and it was all boys at that men at that stage. They they um they started bringing women in later, maybe the late eighties. But um, I was running a course, and of course you had all of these, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if questions. Oh yeah. And 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 because I I had done it in real life, it was fairly simple for me to go, okay, I would do this, I would say that. And at the end of the course, they gave me a little presentation thing, which was Banksy, the man of a thousand answers. Um, (laughs) I've still got it somewhere Um, (laughs) I love it (laughs) because that's what you have to do you you know you have to immerse yourself in in the role of who you are and and you have to act accordingly you know Um, there was a uh, I've got many 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 stories but one for instance sorry a quick one was um, a guy written about in the first book who spoiled it was planning to, to, to kill me I thought we were friends, um, and uh, and he was telling me and my actually worked with a colleague on this one, Larry, um, telling us about how he'd been in jail, you know, and, and what happens in jail and all of that stuff, and and we were sitting there, and our cover was that I was a freelance journo, Larry was my photographer, and we were squareheads as criminals cause clean, you know, um, mm-hmm. normal people, and clean uh, skins, clean skins, mm-hmm. yeah, and. Um, and we we're up there doing a tourist piece, you know, freelance tourist piece. And so we're sitting there, you know, go, oh my God, is that right? Wow, wide-eyed, you know, playing the part of of the um, innocent, naive blokes when both of us probably knew more than he did. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, so it just so it's not always portraying a hard, tough dealer. Um, sometimes you play that that role. Um, yeah, so. Mm. Any, oh, fascinating. Any, any Crawford but, productions but we, out there? Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think they've. I don't think Homicide or oh, what right. else was there? Division Four. Oh yes, yes. Uh, Skippy. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Look, there's still there's still hope for you, Keith. Well, hey, listen, we better not we better not talk too yeah. much about um, your undercover because nobody will come on uh, the twenty fifth. Oh, they will. Oh, they will. I guarantee. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hey, so Keith, after your twenty years in some of 
oh, you could only call them like a dangerous situation is putting it mildly. Oh. Um, but um, as an undercover cop, was there a situation or a time when you decided, you know, maybe I should seek some professional advice about your psychological health or didn't that even come into your, yeah. your thinking? didn't even come into my thinking for two reasons, I guess. One is I didn't think I had any – I was affected by it. I knew my lifestyle had changed. I knew I was smoking a lot of weed and I was drinking a lot and I was, you know, a different guy. But um, – and the, the second reason is it didn't really exist. You know, the, the culture back in the 80s, I guess across society as well, not just the cops, was that psychiatrists were only really for nutcases, you know. So, you know, there was no such – there wasn't even a conversation about you need to have some therapy or you need to have some support. It was, oh, they go to a shrink, they must be mental, is exactly the way um, the attitude was. So, you know, even my mates who were damaged, um, you know, they – there was no, there's not even, it wasn't even in our thought process to, to seek support. Um, and Did you not think that you were damaged or that um, being in this lifestyle is going to change me and, you know, my mind isn't what it used to be? Like it just didn't enter your head? Yeah, oh, look, I, I knew it had changed personally. I knew it had changed me. But, again, that um, young male thinking, the um, idealistic attitude, yeah, Oh, well, it had to happen for me to be successful at my job as a UC. So, you know, it was almost like, oh, well, that's just the price we pay. If I do remember having the chat with a couple of the boys, oh, you know, maybe in 30 years if we're bosses somewhere and, you know, we've got some issues, then we, we could probably sue the department. But it was more in a joking way. It was never a serious conversation. Mm. And, mm. and again, as males, one of the big failings that males had and still do have in some extent, to some extent, is they're not un- honest about how they feel, you know. So so we were still alpha males. And and, it, and I just thought, oh, well, that's a part of my life. I loved it. I broke some rules, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now I'll move on to the next stage of my life. Um, it was only years later that, that I crashed um, and, I, and I, you know, and I left. And, and then years later I realised I was broken. Um, you know, I had all of those symptoms when I resigned but that was a long time after undercover. But, again, it's a whole nother conversation because I, I actually just thought it was me. I thought I was, to be honest, I thought mm. I was overreacting, yep. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think you've said before that you weren't diagnosed with PTSD until 2019. That's right, That's yeah. something like, what, 30 years later or something. It's yeah, a huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're right. It's Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? You know, um, it is bizarre, and it, that sort of brings me to my next question. Sure. So, did you have any psych tests uh, prior to becoming a UC? Like, did you have to be a certain type of person? Did they test you in any way? <laughs> no, no, they do now. I gather by that laugh <laughs> that means no. <laughs> no, that's a no. Um, it, <laughs> undercover in my day was. Quite literally, I went to an inspector, a uniform inspector who I trusted who had been a detective and said, boss, I want to talk about how I become an undercover agent. He looked at me and he said, yeah, you'd probably be all right. So <laughs> um, so that was the, that was the tick, was that, it? That was the tick, yeah. And he rang, <gasps> he rang his contact oh at the God. drug squad. I went in and had a chat with the senior sergeant. And I was a baby-faced little guy. And um, we had the chat and I was all, you know, idealistic and I want to save the world. And, and he must have thought, yeah, okay, well, we'll get you in because you don't look like a copper. Um, 
and that was it. So there was no, no, there was certainly no psychological testing, nothing at all. And that was the way that pretty much all the police forces operated in those days, except oh for New Zealand. New Zealand was were years ahead of us. Year, oh, and, and I only realised that later when I was a sergeant working in the intelligence and covert surveillance area, as I, I worked on biker gangs and I had a great contact in New Zealand. Um, and we talked about all of this. He said, oh, yeah, mate. He said, you know, we, we psychologically tested our undercovers going back to the early 80s. We, we transitioned them back. You know, we had a whole debrief for and I was thinking, wow, <laughs> wow. Um, but no, most police forces, not. They, they just threw young kids, sometimes straight from the academy, um, but they oh threw young God. kids into undercover because they just didn't look like coppers and, and that was the only litmus test. God. So so you obviously would never have been warned about the possible psychological side effects? No. Of- no, the short answer is no. Um, you know, I, I remember I, I spoke to. I was still in uniform when I was when I was trying when I was doing all of this. You know, I want to be an undercover, and there was a guy who'd sadly he's passed away now. But he he came back and he'd spent about two years undercover as well. Um, and he came back in the uniform and he was telling me about an instance. He was in a house. There were three big um, Samoan boys that uh, he was buying drugs from. One of them recognised him and uh, recognised him as a cop. And he had to try and fight his way out and he had to pull his gun out and shoot one of them through the hand and then ran out of the house with a broken jaw and so on. And I'm thinking, wow. And I said, so where was your backup? And he just laughed at me. <laughs> and I understood later why he laughed at me because there was no such thing as a backup. <laughs> oh, it's almost laughable, but it's not. It's oh, just. Yeah. But then again, as we keep saying, this was way back in the what was it? The late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. yeah. And it was a different world. Like when I joined in eighty seven, it was a different world back then. Yeah. And I suppose that you just accepted that's that's what it is. That's my job. Oh, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> you know, even the, the smoking dope thing. When when I was first in a position where I was doing that, I remember thinking, now I know this is against the law, but obviously it's condoned because I'm an undercover cop. No one actually ever said you're permitted to do it. They gave you as much weed as you wanted. It's a whole different story. But hmm. but it was never formally condoned. It was one of those bizarre unspoken bizarre things. Bizarre is, mm. yeah, bizarre is mm. putting it mildly. Yeah. So... Do you now think, and I think from what you said then about New Zealand UCs, do you think that UCs should be periodically psychologically assessed or reassessed during their tenure as a UC? Without doubt. Without yeah, doubt. Yeah. I, I, think, uh, yeah. I think there should be a psychological touch base point probably every at least a quarter, at least a quarter, um, just to see how it's going because, you know, there's it's not only – a legal requirement for police departments, services, forces, whatever the verbiage is, to look after their people. It's also a humanitarian one, you know, and, and you're putting people in a position um, where often now they're unarmed, um, they still work alone, they have more coverage, and I'm being careful what I say, but they have more coverage than they used to, but you're still dealing with criminals and you're still oh, yeah. portraying yourself as a criminal and that that does have um, without doubt it has a psychological impact um, I, I, I do know I tend to make light of it but I look back in hindsight and think my good god you know I was I was a kid 
and and I was in bikey clubhouses. I was in, you know, drug dealers' places, and and no one ever knew really where we were. There were there were no mobiles or pages or tracking devices. Um, we were just out there somewhere. And by the but but even if you had but even if you had them, um, you would never have um, warned them because somebody just has to find one. Oh, yeah, or suspect you've got one on you, and you. Well, the only good, good night, Irene. Exactly right. You know, I I remember I had arguments um, with particular people who wanted me to wear a, a recording device, and I went, "My goodness gracious, no, I'm not going to." <laughs> 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 because, uh, you know, it, oh, yeah. it wasn't uncommon for drug dealers to say, get your gear off, I just want to see if you're wide. And, of course, then oh, you, yeah. you, you get offended and, you know, push, shove, scream, yell, but ultimately you do it. And then, then there'd be a whole different conversation. Um, you know, don't you trust me, mm. blah, blah, blah. But yeah. um, and, and the technology in those days wasn't great anyway. But... No, it was no. just yeah, I, you know, it, it, and and at that tender age, doing what we were doing for me personally, it gave me a lot more self confidence, and the other side of the coin was a lot more arrogance, you know. So I I didn't put up with dickheads anymore, you know. I used to, but I didn't put up with them. And I'm talking about in the police force. Um, yep. Yeah. You know, as, as we've talked. There's a few of them. Oh, yeah. That, that hasn't changed. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I've, I've had this conversation with various people. In my opinion, just lived experience, in policing you meet the best people in the world or the biggest dickheads and there seems to be no mm. grey area in between. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. But that's, you You're know, right. Yeah. You know, and I'd have to say the majority or oh, 98% of the people I met in policing were Salt of the earth, just fantastic people. But gee, that two percent. Oh, oh, the troublesome two percent. You're right. <laughs> oh, gee. Hey, so during yeah. your your years in UC, if that if an option was ever offered to you for say a periodical psych assessment, do you reckon you would have considered it, or you would have um, said, "Come on, you know, goodness gracious me, off you go." I oh, good question. I, I guess thinking back to how I was, I would have accepted it on the condition that no one else knew that I'd accepted it. Yeah. To, <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so I, I would have liked to have known how I was going, but I wouldn't have wanted my mates to see me. There's that uh, stigma again, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. You know, oh, I don't want to be talking to anybody about that mm. fluffy touchy feely stuff. <laughs> mm, that's that's right. Well, or be seen to be doing it. Um, the other challenge is, you know, as as you know, later in my career, I've been in gunfights. I've been in situations that were quite life threatening, very life threatening, and so on. Um, even then, a peer, sorry, a, a psychologist who is appointed by the police department, the challenge that he or she has is that cops find it very difficult to speak with them because the psychologist has never experienced life on the street in those situations. Whilst they have theoretical um, knowledge, etc., cops are very, as you know, Narol, we're very um, insular, we're very territorial, um, we are distrustful of others, and, and also we know that other people don't see what we see. So there's the challenge with psycho- psychologists and, you know, Maybe that's why I wasn't diagnosed until many years later because um, I didn't probably really find one that I liked enough, to be honest with. 
Mm. And I think also, you know, and again, this is for another day, but I also think the only time a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any mental health expert will work is when you accept that you are damaged and you are prepared to accept help. Because I, I found that the hardest to accept that I had a, quote, mental illness, unquote, and until you actually accept that you're not right, you'll never get better. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and removing the stigma. So one of my passions is, is talking openly and authentically to people about my mental illness, injury, whatever we want to term it. Um, because to me, it's the same as breaking your leg. If you break your leg, there's a treatment. If, you're, if your brain is injured through trauma, which it has been for both you and me and many, many thousands of others, then there's treatment available. And, and it, should be, it should be perceived in the same way by those who aren't injured, but really importantly by those who are, you know. Um, and that's, that's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that still has to be done in that space. Um, but you're spot on. Once, once you realise, shit, I do have some problems. It was very mm. empowering mm. for me to be diagnosed. To be honest, I, I, yes, I walked, likewise. Oh, I walked out yep. of my shrink's office and went, "Wow, I haven't mm. been imagining it." Whew, right. It was almost like a sigh of relief, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. And let's now fix it. Yeah, amazing. Mm. Couldn't agree more. Uh, debriefs. I want to have a bit of a chat about them. Mm. What are your thoughts on the way that police in general? Conduct debriefs. Um, Back in your day, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. talking as a UC. Oh, look, we we were the debrief was always about drinking beer with the arrest teams, and they were telling each other how great they were, um, congratulating themselves on the arrest they'd made as a result of what we did. You know, it, it was appalling. There, there was one job I did on the Gold Coast. I'd gone back to the drug squad as a detective, and. Um, morning drug raids, you know, I can't, maybe 100 people arrested for heroin, whatever, um, heroin dealing mm. and so on. And uh, at the end of the day, as we used to do, we've all gone back to the um, hotel and we were staying, oh, it's one of those bloody resort, not resorts, but, you know, the tall accommodation things on the coast. And the drug squad were all, there was a, like a three or four bedroom unit um, on one floor and then another floor and they're all on the gas. And I've, you know, I don't know where I was. I'd finished lock, finished processing someone at the watch house, I think, and came back and I, they're all drinking and go, oh, great day, great day. And I said, so where's the UC? I don't know. He's upstairs, I think. So I went up to the UC's room, this really cool bloke called Dan, and uh, he was maybe seven floors above them, knock on the door. He went, oh, good day, mate. And I said, uh, you by yourself? He said, yeah. So, well, you're not anymore. Um, so I went in and spent the evening with him and just, you know, congratulating him and then seeing how he was going. And because I'd been there. But the rest of them, because they'd never worked in an undercover capacity, and, and I think I think a lot of the attitude was that, oh, well, there are UCs are out there paid to smoke dope. They just do the how hard can it be? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um... And that was the mentality. So, so the debriefs were appalling. Later in that space, um, I started controlling undercover operations. So, you know, so I was the contact. I was the, the one who ran the strategy, all that stuff. And I looked after my people because I knew how I hadn't been looked after. So there was an evolutionary change there. Um, but, yeah, geez, generally, no. Pretty bad. I'd have to, and the only reason I ask that is because I I can only ever remember debriefs. I didn't find it was the type of envi- environment which encouraged members to actually uh, voice their concerns or their struggles. Mm-hmm. And I think my own view was I just thought they were conducted uh, to tick a box. Yeah, yeah, which is probably. Wrong, but I'm wondering: is that was there ever any debrief? And that's whether you're a UC or a detective or a, a senior Connie or whatever. Were you ever part of any debrief that you found beneficial that you can recall? Ah, oh, let me think. Um, and the fact that I have to think about it just probably means no. Um, oh, gee, you know. Yeah. And, and you're right. I, yeah. I just I think it was there to tick a box, Narelle. Um, one that that still makes me incredibly angry, or even all these years later, was um, I went to I went to a job where a young policeman had been shot at point blank um, by an offender who killed his wife and sorry killed his baby daughter, shot his wife, shot her new partner, and Brett and his partner turned up, um, and as he got out of the car, he was shot point blank through the chest and died. Um, and my tactical team and I went in and uh, we went in and the offender had killed himself, unfortunately. Um, so that night or that out that evening, afternoon, we were told to attend a debrief. So it probably would have been about six or seven at night in the local police station. We thought, okay, this will be, this will be a positive step. So my, myself and my tactical team were all lined up down the back in our blacks and, you know, they had the uniform police there from the station Brett had been at. They had the detectives. They had, you know, public servants. And I, I remember thinking, oh, this this is actually, this is a nice change. You know, there's going to be a conversation about how we're all going. The assistant commissioner stood up. Brett had been murdered probably five hours before 
and this assistant commissioner couldn't even remember his name. He turned, he said, oh, we're here to talk about the death of, what's his name? Oh, <gasps> no, right. And I just, poof. I, I was actually, I had so much anger then. I was almost getting to, I was on my way to getting up to my feet and two of my boys grabbed each arm and just kept me where I was because they knew I would have just gone off. Um, and, you know, so ticking a box, self-aggrandizement, you know, who the heck knows? Um, see, see, I feel that debrief, that's too soon in my view. I think mm. debriefs can be very beneficial. Uh, I'm, I'm yet to go to one that I thought was a good one, mind you, but <laughs> I think they can be like, that's too soon. People need time to absorb what's happened, to get their own mind around things, like to actually have a, a debrief and and do you think that was a debrief or was that more just getting the, the, the crews together and just saying, come on, you know, we've all done a good job? You know, there's a big difference, isn't there, between yeah. a, a formal debrief and like, look, you know, um, what? And, you know, I'm just going to say what the uh, the assistant commissioner said, you know, what's his name? Yeah. You know, it's terrible that he's been murdered, but like – yeah, I think debriefs should be held maybe a week later or maybe – and I think they probably are, oh, but yeah. that's, too, that's too soon. Oh, look, and, and it was appallingly handled. And, and, and you're right, debriefs should be an initial, you know, an initial chat with the crew, um, particularly in shootings, uh, you know, because you've got to go through a homicide bloody investigation interviews oh, yeah. and all of that it's stuff. Enormous. Yeah, and then, yeah. then there should be an initial one like a welfare check and then a week later to say, okay, let's mm. just sit down mm. as a group and individually yeah. and just do a welfare mm. check and say, how are you going? Tell me what it was like. You need an operational debrief to learn from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because absolutely. The, the best, mm. the, there's an old saying, the best battle plan doesn't last, con does, the best battle plan only lasts until contact with the enemy. In other words, everything goes to shit. Um, yeah. And so, and so you, yeah. you need to have all of that. But you know, from a from a human perspective, no, there was no other conversation with us after that night. Oh, that's you true. know, and we—I won't give you the graphic details, but if people read mm. read my second book, I've written about it, um, find, okay. finding the offender and all that sort of stuff. And um, and there was nothing. Mm. And and we just went, oh well, that's you know, and and. And that's why a lot of disgruntled police, even serving police, one of the common phrases they will use is, well, they don't care about us. Who's they? They is that faceless entity mm. of the police force. They don't care about us. And and it really needs to be changed. It really does. Yeah, yeah. And And in one way, we are putting the boots in. But in another way, I've also found probably the best debriefing I've had in any major incident I've been involved, which is nothing like yours, but it's more the uh, the friends or the colleagues that will say, hey, Fraze, what are you up to? Let's go out. You know, can you believe that? Let's go. And so you do it um, uh, personally, like just with one-on-one -on -one sort of, whereas if you do a debrief in a group I don't know about you, but I don't know many police that would ever stand up in a in a formal mm, debrief mm. and talk about how it has affected them emotionally. It, it just doesn't happen. But some of the the best debriefs I've ever had are with my colleagues, and there are so many that cared one on one. But as a organisation, I think they have a lot to learn about supporting 
you know, each other through something really horrific. Yeah, yeah. I, look, you, you always, uh, I couldn't agree more, I always had support of my friends, as in my oh, work yeah. colleagues and friends, um, whether it be over 45 beers or whether it not, it, it was, you know, you're more... You're more able to talk to your friends, um, and, and you're right because again, going back to that alpha male and alpha female culture, you know we're out there engaging with some pretty bad crooks, and the crooks don't have rules. We do. Um, so, so to stand up in front of a group and go, "Yeah, I'm struggling a bit," wouldn't happen. Would never happen. And I, I, I don't know, but I, and it's been a long time since I've been there, but I, I still doubt that you would have somebody stand up. And I hope I'm wrong. But I don't think we've come a long way, uh, but I don't think we've come quite that no, far yet. No, uh, You witnessed a lot of corruption in your years, uh, particularly with the drug squad and, um, as a UC. So what advice would you give to anyone listening who suspects, and I'm probably talking more police here, but, you know, corruption happens in all different uh, uh, workplaces, but what sort of advice would you give anyone listening who suspects that there is some type of corruption happening in their particular world? Um, so my my immediate thought on that is that there's a saying I love and the saying is the situation you walk by is the situation you accept, right? Yes. So yeah. if you ignore it, that means you're accepting it. And I always, even look, I've broken a hell of a lot of rules. You know, I, I was, I would have been a nightmare to manage as a cop, um, but I've never been a crook. I've never been corrupt. Um, and in my view, anybody in policing who was corrupt, and that, and by that I mean taking payoffs, stealing property, stealing money, not doing their job for bribes, all of that stuff is criminal in my opinion. And um, if they did that. They spat on their badge. So for me, they no longer had my loyalty. And and I think from a cultural perspective, there's still a thing with police where they go, oh, I'm not going to lag on my mates. But what you walk by is what you accept. And um, mm. what people should do is, is think long and hard about, first of all, not getting involved in it, having the ability to say no, um, and then secondly, explore what options there are in their organisations to report it. Because you know we, we need to get over that old Australian attitude of don't be a dobber. Um, if if people are operating in an environment where they affect your integrity um, as as a member of an organisation, they need to be held accountable for it. But wouldn't you agree that some people ignore corruption or they don't do anything about it? There's lots of reasons. Maybe they might. I don't know, lose their job. Maybe they might, well, we're going back to what you said about losing the respect of their peers, like a whole lot of things. There are a lot of, well, I don't know about a lot, but there there might be some very, very good reasons why people choose to ignore it. But as you say, if they do choose to ignore it, well, they are accepting that's, it, aren't That's they? right. And, and it comes down yeah. to an individual um, decision, I guess, Narelle. And look, I, I even though I had a very challenging childhood. My mother raised me with a real moral compass, and 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 I'm probably a little more extreme than than a lot, where I just say don't accept it. Having said that, I, I saw things in in Queensland, and I spoke with a a trusted colleague about what I should do and who I should report it to. Um, and his firm advice was do nothing because you don't know who you're dealing with. You don't know 
if you go to internal investigations or internal affairs, they have colleagues that are corrupt. Um, and it turned out he was right because when we had our corruption inquiry, a number of senior police who had worked in the internal investigations area went to jail. Um, so, you know, and, 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 and the threat was real then and it, it burned me that I couldn't do anything about it, but I chose to take his advice because in those days it was quite probable um, that I would have come home to my rented flat and found an ounce of heroin in my bedside drawer with someone outside waiting to execute a search warrant and lock me up. That And there were worse things that happened than that, um, mm, you know. I'm sure. um, so, but now, now, you know, we have whistleblower protection. We have most organisations encouraging people to come forward. The, the other side of the coin, though, that reporting mechanism can be misused, um, you know, so those who investigate it uh, need to have the skill set to determine truth and bloody vicious allegation and the difference between the two. So it's a, it's, it's a vexed one. Yeah, it is. And I've got to say from uh, what I've read, I've never had any experience with it myself, but I don't have a lot of confidence with the Whistleblower Act mm. or whatever it's called. It just seems to me that it's still, if somebody does uh, blow the whistle, that they are Oh, ostracised. Yeah, uh, a lot of them. A lot of them lose their job. Yeah, you know, people can make up all sorts of reasons that it, oh, it wasn't because they. Let's say we use the word lagged. We probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just I, I don't have a lot of confidence in that. But it's the people that run the uh, oh, what would you call it? The these um, not acts. What are the, the team? Uh, the investigations into this. Oh, uh, workplace misconduct. Yeah. Oh yeah. God! Some of them are hopeless. What a nightmare. Some of them are hopeless. Yeah, yeah, as well. you're right. Yeah, yeah. you're um, right. And they, and they t- and they take the position because it's a promotion. Yep. But they don't realise what the responsibilities are. Yep. And you know how they need to protect a whistleblower. It's a big. It's a big thing to to you know blow the whistle on somebody that everyone else loves. And that often happens, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's the mm-hmm. the one that everyone reckons is a great bloke or a great woman. Oh, no, she'd never do that. Oh, Roger Rogerson yeah. springs to mind because everyone thought oh, Roger Rogerson was a great detective and a good bloke, um, you know. So it, it, it's a really tough one, Narelle. I guess it's up to the individual to make their mind up. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I look back on the challenges it, it was for me and many, many, many of my honest colleagues to mm. put up with the corruption we saw because we knew there was no nothing we could really do about it. Um, mm. Things have mm. changed. But, but, yeah, but also you're talking about, you know, um, life and death situations mm. with what you saw and that is just, you know, another level. But, yeah, so your career... Uh, as a UC, you talk a lot about, and you were surrounded by guns, both legal and illegal. Yeah. You've had a gun pointed to your head. You've uh, nearly ended your life with a gun, mm. your own gun. Mm. So what's your opinion about guns these days? And they just seem to be everywhere in the community. That That's a, a gross generalisation, mm. but there seems to be a huge amount of illegal guns getting into the wrong hands. Truth, yeah. What do we do, Keith? There is. I mean, I'll I'll go back a step. Not only had one pointed at me, I've been shot at a few times. Um, 
So, you know, I, for me, firearms were the tool of my trade. They're also the biggest danger that I faced. And oh I was yeah. only having this conversation literally two days ago with some veteran cops. Um, mm-hmm. And I went out and had a, uh, had a few beers, as you do. Um, Another 48? That's <laughs> all, it's all <laughs> confidential, Narelle. We can't give that away too much. Um, <laughs> but we're talking about illegal guns. And, and, you know, I reckon, no, I don't reckon, I know. Even though I'm not a native of Melbourne, I could probably give me two weeks. I could buy an illegal Glock. I guarantee I could. I'd know where to go. I'd know what to say. I'd know how to do it. And that's how that's how easily available they are. And you know, whilst we have shooters' licenses, which I think are great, I I do. And this is going to some people may hate what I'm about to say, but I do have concerns about handguns and their safe storage. Um, I know we have legislation and regulation, but a lot of handguns that hit the black market are stolen from legitimate pistol shooters. They're yes. stolen from home safes. They're stolen from pistol ranges. Um, you know, and, and you have to go, well, how many of those break-ins are conducted with the knowledge of the pistol owner, if you get my drift? Um, yes, I'm sure that some of them are, and and I, you know, you can actually go now. You, I could go out, go through the whole licensing thing, do my testing, join a pistol club. I, I could have a 45 caliber Glock with you know eight rounds, um, which is a pretty awesome handgun, in my safe at home. You know, and um, so there's that. There's also the fact that you know the customs or border force in this country do not have the resources to check every container that comes in, every um, muscle car that's imported, etc. And again, I'll be careful what I say, but back when I was in criminal intelligence and working on particular organised crime gangs, a lot of firearms were imported exactly that way. Um, and they were imported under the guise of engine parts, machine parts, motorcycle parts, cars, whatever. And, and it's pretty easy to strip down a Glock particularly um, because a great deal of it is polymer plastic. It's not steel. The frame is, is metal. Mm. But you can hide mm. it in various places and, and it will never be picked up um, by detection. Um, so we've got a whole bloody swag of, of illegal firearms, not just in Victoria, across the country. You know, you look at seizures that happen in New South Wales and there I saw a seizure a couple of weeks ago, um, submachine guns. I thought, wow. You know, they're, they're yeah. still getting them in somehow. Um, the honest answer is I don't know. I, I think it's just way too late. I don't think we will ever have an ability in this country to to limit the amount of illegal firearms like we'd like to. I, I've often thought, because I do a fair bit of research and interviews with uh, victims of dom- domestic violence, police that have been to domestic violence incidents where guns are involved. And I think a lot of domestic violence incidents, I think they'd be oh, halved is a, a big um, percentage, but I think there would be a lot less if we kept, if police had a, had a safe safekeeping at police stations so that you just can't grab a gun if you're pissed off with somebody Mm. or you're angry. So you have to go to a police station or somewhere formal to get the gun out rather than have it at your own house. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is that? Do you reckon that yeah, could work? I, I think that would be that'd be a good step because you know if I lost my if I had a gun at home and lost my mind one night, it's pretty easy to go out, open the safe, load the magazine, and away that's what you I go. mean. Um, yeah, you know. So it, and even there used to be. Or not, I don't know because I'm not in a pistol club. I haven't fired a gun for a long time, but. Um, um, a requirement to keep them at pistol clubs and then pistol clubs started getting hit and safes blown and whatever. So, you know, maybe maybe that's not a bad idea. Pist- shooters would hate it because, you know, and, and it's, it, it is a particular removal of rights, but, you know, again, do you take the decision to protect people um, at the expense of others' rights? Again, you know, one of those really interesting balanced questions. But, I, but I'll also say... Um, it's not- no question on my no no question with me. I should be. anyway. <laughs> but, al- yeah, also, go on. <laughs> but also say it's not just guns that are used to kill partners. You know, yeah, um, you and I yeah, both true. you and I both know enough knives, blunt instruments, you know, physical violence, all that sort of stuff. So mm. um, yeah, yeah a- right. again, human beings. I think I think the answer really lies in what's happening a lot now with with um, younger generations being taught respect for relationships with women. You know, and vice versa. Yes. Yeah, yeah, true. A generational change. And there's there's another podcast. Oh, there is, Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a few. I did warn you. You know, I love to chat about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We're uh, We've got a few in the bank, you know. (laughs) Yeah, we have. Um, So you're one of Queensland Police's most decorated uh, officers. You've received a number of Valour Awards and Bravery Awards. Is there one? And I'm sure on the night we'll we'll probably Mm. – touch on this, but um, is there one which stands out above all the others for any reason? Yeah, yeah. My um, my, my uh, VA and Bravery Medal for the siege at the MLC building in Brisbane, um, a very short, people can read about it. Um, see, you, see, notice the way I'm just shamelessly plugging my book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to be plugging the show, Keith. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll be 25th doing, of June. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but, um, but, yeah, look, because I, I went there with the intention of shooting someone and I ended up spending time with him and saving his life and my life because he was going to kill both of us. Um, and, and later when I gave evidence in the committal proceedings at the Magistrates Court, um, he stopped me on the way out, shook my hand and thanked me for saving his life. Wow. Vietnam veteran yeah. with major PTSD. Um, well, oh. you know, is there any such thing as made is there any such thing as minor PTSD? Probably not. Yeah. Um yeah. so that that's oh. the one I'm proudest of because that for mm. me was a bit of a turning point in my darkness as well. You know, um I, I had a whole gee whiz, I, I still had a murderous, um, angry, bloody attitude towards criminals I you know I, I still had that I will shoot anybody when any opportunity arises mentality when I actually went there with that intention then then spent time with this poor broken man who by the way had a box of jolly night and a hand grenade and a rifle but um but that really is the one I'm most just proud to of. add yeah. like, like as, if, as if it wasn't uh, dangerous enough yeah, that's oh right. my goodness um but that, yeah, that's the one I'm yeah. proudest of yeah yeah and so you should be well, thank you so Keith You've become an avid, very passionate mental health advocate um, as a result of your personal experiences. And what concerns me is that men are highly represented in statistics regarding mental health. In fact, I quote this often because it's so concerning that of the approximate 44 people a week who suicide in Australia, three quarters of them are men. Mm. 
Can you share with us some of the groups you belong to? Because there's very possibly some men out there who are listening, who are struggling, but they don't know where to go or how to take those first steps in seeking some support. Yeah. Look, first thing I'll say, Narelle, is I've been there. Um, I actually, as you know, I I sat in my house one night when I was a younger person, a tactical cop, and I had uh, I had a pistol in my mouth and thinking about all I've got to do is squeeze a trigger and all the pain goes away. Um, so I understand it, I really do. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I, I belong to, I proudly belong to, um, first of all, an organisation called the Male Hug. I'm a I'm a board member of the Male Hug. Um, we were set up. Three, three years ago, we're all volunteers, um, and our mission is to encourage men to speak before it's too late. So we, um, we have a buddy line. Um, so if, if people want to Google the male hug um, buddy, yeah, there'll be a 1300 number that comes up, and we actually have a roster of men who will take those calls. And often, you know, someone just wants someone to talk to. Um, more than that, we go out and have a coffee with someone. You know, we stay away from alcohol because that often exacerbates the problem. Um, unless it's appropriate to have a beer with someone, who the heck knows? But you know, we we are we are passionate advocates of the mental health space, and and um, and I'm the only veteran cop on it. There, the the guys are ranging from business development accountants, um, you know, um, guys okay. in guys in the media. Um, we actually have a, a former AFL Hawthorne player who sits on the board with us, um, who's been very open about his own struggles. So, so that's an organisation I'm very proud to be part of. Um, mm. Secondly, Police Veterans Victoria. So, PVV started again about three years ago, I think. Um, I'm a volunteer peer support officer with with Police Veterans, and we are set up um, specifically to provide support to police veterans who have anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, um, whatever issues and challenges to give them the support of their their peers. And, and it's about connecting. Um, one of the biggest things that happens when people leave policing, whether they do it voluntarily or um, whether they are medically discharged or sometimes when they retire, often when they retire, is, is, that, is that loss of tribe and that loss of connection. Mm. Um, mm. and, and that's one of the hugest components in recovery is to understand that you are still part of an, part of a group where, where human beings are, um, where, where things that we just, we need company, yeah, with some exceptions. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah. we really need that. We need to be accepted. We need to have affirmation. We need to feel, we need to feel important. You know, we need to feel wanted. And so with PVV, that's what we do. We we have veterans referred to us um, or sometimes like I, I did last week, I, I started talking to a guy and realised he was a veteran and he's broken. So I'm, I'm encouraging him to let me be his support guy. Um, so I'm very proud of that. I, I think it's an incredible organisation. Um, I think it's, I know it's life-saving. Um, and, and part of the other pillar that I, you know, that I have in, in, in what I do is I advocate, I'm an advocate for destigmatizing the conversation around mental health. You know, as, as you well know, Narelle, um, the, the issues of mental health are incredibly widespread and there are thousands of thousands of people out there who struggle. Yeah. But until we can actually say, 
it's okay to say that you're struggling. It's okay to accept and understand that you um, that you have a mental health injury. That's okay because you're not by yourself, you know. And and that is that is you know that that is something I could really really talk about for hours because I see the benefits. I've personally gone through the journey. Um, I, I I just never thought I'd get out of it, but I have. Um, you know, and as a result, it's it's like you. It's lived experience. You know, we we're in a position where we can absolutely openly talk to people about it, which is one of the things I want to talk about, as well as the stories. One of the things I just you know I'd love to have a chat about a further chat about on the night of our show. Oh, beautiful segue, Kate. There you go. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, now I'm going to test you here. Please. Where where is our show? Oh God, um, the, oh, the, yeah. the National <laughs> Library, I think. <laughs> oh, you've failed. <laughs> I don't know. Um, there is another no, no, name for no, the National the State Library. Oh, beautiful. At what time? 7 p.m. sharp, but I'll be there at about 6.30, I reckon. I like, uh, I like to get early. What, <laughs> what date? The 25th of June. Oh, you're going well. And there one go. last one. Go. Where do, you, where do you get tickets? Ah, Eventbrite. I know that one very well. <laughs> you passed. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, Keith, I'm th- why did I say National Library? <laughs> State Library. <laughs> uh, look, no, thanks, Keith. Thanks very much. Uh, and uh, I can't, like you, I can't wait for the 25th yeah. just to hear how all the intricacies of becoming a UC and some of those, oh, some more of the situations. How many have you got, Keith? Seriously. Oh, it, it, oh. Seriously, Narelle, heaps of them. Um, but, but I am going to talk about one I haven't written about. Um, as well as one that did affect me very deeply. And um, and happy to take any questions from anybody in the audience. And, and I have to say, no subject is taboo. No worries. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll plant a couple of questions for you. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keith. Thanks again. See you Saturday night the 25th. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Norelle. All right. See ya. Bye, Keith. Bye. Ta-da. it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review and please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.